Aloha. It is Tuesday, February 20th. This is Catherine Cruz. Mahalo for joining us here on The Conversation, Hawaii Talks. The U.S. military responds to concerns from one family living in Manana about what's in their tap by delivering bottled water to her home. This weekend marks two years since the start of the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. We talk with a local group about why Hawaii residents should pay attention to the war there. We talk about marriage equality and a proposed amendment to to Hawaii's constitution, what could be put before voters. And we talk with an author about Filipino stories, using Filipino history to provide context for our lives today. Tune to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. HPR was there at a Red Hill meeting held at Alelo's TV studios last week. The Community Representation Initiative was established by the Environmental Protection Agency in light of the problems with fuel in the drinking water. A number of military wives spoke about their frustration about continuing to report intermittent sheens and chemical odors in housing that is on the Navy's water system. The Navy has said it is not jet fuel from the Red Hill Underground Bulk Fuel Facility, though low levels of a petroleum compound, TPH, have been found. The levels are below low federal action levels, and because of increasing complaints, the military has assembled what it calls a swarm team of experts to try and solve the mystery of what's in the water and what's behind the complaints. One Air Force spouse, Ashley Smith, shared how her toddler was hospitalized following the 2021 contamination. She has since moved to another neighborhood, Manana, in the Pearl City area, but she asked military officials to please take their concerns seriously. I hope moving forward that there's going to be more transparency and you guys are actually going to take people's words seriously because um, every person matters. In the military, you don't leave one man behind. You shouldn't be leaving one family behind either. Thank you. Thank you. You know, following that meeting, Smith said she found out that the Navy had delivered bottled water to her home in response to her concern and the insistence of a committee member. We had 10 cases of 24 bottles of water delivered to our house. It actually got to the house before I did. So that was definitely a happy surprise for us. And this was in reaction to your story that you shared uh, with uh, the uh, members and the public at last week's meeting. Share with our listeners what your family went through. So we originally lived on Ford Island during the original 2021 Red Hill water crisis, and we moved out of that house once they had deemed the water clean. We moved back into the house for about a month, and then we moved into our current housing out in Pearl City. And when we first moved in, we had been told that the you know the house wasn't on the water line. And then we got a notice a short way into living here that we were switched back to the Navy water line. So fast forward to January 3rd this year, both of my children drink water from my son's sippy cup that we had pulled out of our refrigerator water top. And my son, you know, in the backseat in his car seat, you know, yelled, ow, it burns. And um, my daughter then grabbed the water bottle, took a sip of it as well and said, yeah, mommy, it burns. And so my son's tongue, his mouth and his throat all burned. And then my daughter's mouth was also burning from having drank the same water. Um, then I tried to grab it from them before there was any more passing of it back and forth. But at that time, you know, my husband had called the EOC 
to try to clarify, you know, if there was testing that could be done, if we were on the Navy waterline. And at that time, they said, you know, that we weren't on the waterline and there wasn't really anything they could do, but they would investigate. So they did so, called us back, and then said, oh, you know, unfortunately, we don't have you on our system for long-term monitoring. It doesn't look like you're on the Navy waterline. There's not much we can do. So then I got on the phone and said, you know, I I know for certain at one point we were on the waterline. And, um, you know, regardless of who's responsible, we're in military housing and, you know, we need to figure out what's in our water. And so, um, you know, I pushed back and then the next day they were able to come out and do the rapid testing for the TPH. And at that point, everything came back as non-detect for the TPH. And so I had sent in a report to the EPA, the DOH, and the EOC, the Navy, of course. And, you know, we didn't get confirmation that we were on the Navy waterline until January 9th. And that actually came from the Department of Health. So, you know, even after we got confirmation that we were on the Navy waterline, we didn't hear from long-term monitoring until the 22nd. And when we talked, you had mentioned this is deja vu because when you were living over there on Ford Island, you know, you were told the water's safe. And then you found out, you know, there was fuel in the water. And your children or your son suffered some pretty severe symptoms. Yeah. So, you know, this whole situation is very indicative of how it kind of started last time that, oh, there might be something in the water, but it's safe. And so we, you know, we utilize it. We drink it. We put it in the humidifier, you know, through our filter, of course, on our refrigerator, but still. Um, But yeah, back in 2022, it was April 2022, after we had initially moved into our house in Pearl City, Um, my son was hospitalized for a total of, I believe it was five nights, five days for, um, he had blood in his stool. He was consistently, constantly having diarrhea, projectile vomiting, um, and then ended up having vomit in his blood as well, or, um, blood in his vomit as well. And, you know, when we took him to the emergency room, they ran test after test and, you know, he had low platelets, he had um, uh, low blood, you know, severely low blood sugar, he was severely dehydrated, and but they could never tell us what had caused it. We ended up having a Meckel scan done just to see if, you know, maybe that was it that caused, you know, so much blood in his stool. That came back negative. Every test they ran came back negative. And so for us, you know, especially in hindsight, we look at, well, when was our house switched back to Navy water? And when we were switched back to Navy water, is that what then caused, you know, this incident for my son? You know, he was in the hospital, started getting better. So we were discharged, came home. We were home for about a day and a half. And then he started throwing up and having diarrhea again, couldn't keep anything down. And we ended up right back at the hospital after having given him the water in our home. And just to be clear, so this was over at Kapiolani Children's Hospital, correct? Yeah, he was seen at Kapiolani. Yeah, I mean, you didn't go through the clinic. You just were a little concerned and, and went straight to Kapiolani. Yeah, my hope, in, because what we have heard is that a lot of the doctors at the clinic are, you know, primary care physicians, which is wonderful to have access to that. However, if we're looking at him having consumed something toxic, then I was hoping that we would be able to get access to somebody who might have more depth of knowledge to be able to evaluate his symptoms. And I, you know, we had hoped that that could happen at Capiolani, and he was referred to a GI specialist at Capiolani, who was wonderful. But again, you know, there wasn't a test done to determine whether or not he had toxic substances in his system. And at that time, I didn't know what test to ask for. It's scary. You don't know what was in the water the first time uh, when you were living there 
uh, over at Ford Island, and no one's real sure what's happening with the water there in Manana because the tests that they're doing for jet fuel, they say there's no jet fuel. But, you know, what we heard from the uh, community meeting last week was that, you know, there are other chemicals or compounds that maybe they should be testing for. So you and a number of, of the other members of the public, you know, had raised concerns that, you know, the military was being dismissive. I heard gaslighting a, a number of times from uh, uh, from the public as well. Uh, they just want something done. Yeah. I mean, so one of the biggest issues, not biggest issues, but one of the major issues we had in the first round was that it took people getting sick before anything was done. And right now it's feeling very similar. You know, the EPA and the Navy both demonstrated during that meeting that they knew that there was this large uptick in complaints. And even with that knowledge, you know, my neighborhood wasn't being tested at all until I pushed it. When I had asked, you know, is my neighborhood going to be put on long-term monitoring? And they said no, because, you know, long-term monitoring is wearing out. And now, you know, that has been clarified at that meeting, at the CRI meeting, that, you know, my neighborhood will be included in further testing. However, you know, it shouldn't be that we have to push this hard. It shouldn't be that we have to go to meetings with videos of, you know, sheen on top of our water to prove that there's something wrong with the system, you know. As an educator, nobody has to come into my classroom and tell me what I'm doing wrong. You know, I evaluate, I look at it. If something's not working, I check it, I change it. And I feel like we're having to not babysit, but almost kind of like, you know, if we don't say something, would this swarm team have happened? Would they have put together the swarm team if the CRI hadn't compiled this list of, I think it was over 50 people, you know, and they knew, the Navy and the EPA knew that over 60% of the testing that they were doing had low-level amounts of TPH. So something's in the water, you know, whether that, you know, they're saying that it's not indicative of it being JP5 TPH, but whatever it is, there's something in the water. And it's not okay that, you know, families are the ones who are having to push this for testing and push to figure out what it is when we are not the ones who are responsible for the water system. And you got your water, but you're wondering what about your other neighbors who may have questions about the quality of water they're getting in their tap? Well, I mean, me and every other family that's having, you know, some kind of sheen or some kind of, you know, chemical smell in their water, it's, you know, it's spread out between, you know, from Manana all the way through Joint Base and, you know, Iroquois Point or Fort Island, you know, all of these places that were impacted initially are likely impacted again. And so, you know, I am so grateful that, you know, the two people who came out late at night to drop off that water for us, and I'm so grateful for Mr. Bennett, you know, for orchestrating that. But what about all of the other families, you know, the ones who can't afford to purchase filters to put in their, to their home like we did, or you know, don't have access to show up at a meeting and, you know, have Mandy to raise the alarm and, you know, demand water be delivered. You know, what about all of these other children and their families or people who are disabled or people who just can't afford to go out and purchase cases of water? Like, it's so frustrating that there's so many of us. And it's... It sounds like you shouldn't have to badger the military to get access yeah, to this water. Yeah. And, you know, we put in these filters in our home, but we have you know, we don't know what we're trying to filter out. So we're hoping for the best. We're hoping that we're doing right by our kids and that, you know, they're not going to later on down the road develop cancer from having drink toxic water in their sippy cups at daycare and preschool and at our home. But without the knowledge of what was in the water, what is in the water, you know, it's hard to know if we're doing right by our kids. And 
you know, that's not just my family. That's every family who's being impacted right now. That was Ashley Smith, the wife of an Air Force member of the family that had been living at Fort Island when fuel was discovered in the Navy water system in 2021. Uh, the family has since moved to housing in Manana, which was on county water, but then switched back onto the Navy system. Her family has reported intermittently seeing a sheen uh, on their tap water as well as chemical odors that come and go. Support for HPR comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa with info sessions for the 2024 Distance Learning Executive MBA and Master of HR Management, scheidler.hawaii.edu executive. This weekend, HPR presents the Makaha Sons. The first two shows are sold out, so we're adding a third show this Saturday at 2 p.m. For tickets and more information, visit hprtickets.org. Sponsored by Farm Lovers Markets. There is an effort underfoot to protect marriage equality here in Hawaii, given the political climate in our nation's capital and the recent Supreme Court decision to weaken abortion rights across the country. Today, HBR reporter Ashley Mizuo joins us. She's focusing on a bill looking to make a constitutional amendment that deals with same-sex marriage. Good morning. Good morning. Happy to be here. Um, so before we get into exactly what this uh, constitutional amendment is, I think you know it's really important to understand the history behind it. Um, so the Hawaii legislature passed the Hawaii Marriage Equality Act in 2013. Three weeks of the same-sex marriage special session came down to a final vote, and it did not end quietly. 19 ayes. Four no's and two excused. Senate Bill 1, House Draft 1, passes final reading. May I remind the audience to please refrain yourselves, otherwise we're going to clear the gallery. I remember that day. Yeah, that was you. Um, I was looking for some archival sound, and I found um, a report that you that you were there that day. Do you remember what it was like? Yes, it was. Uh, you know, I always say you never... Um, uh, take anything for granted at the state legislature because anything can happen even on the last day. <laughs> but yeah, I remember that day. Right. Yeah. And so I just wanted to, to bring that up. And, you know, in 2015, we had the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court had the Obergefell v. Hodges case, you know, and that legalized same-sex marriage at a federal level. And then in December 2022, President Biden signed into law the Respect for Marriage Act. Um, but, you know, all of this really heavily relies on the Obergefell decision from the U.S. Supreme Court. Um but in our Hawaii Constitution, even though we have the Hawaii Marriage Equality Act, there is still Section 23, which reads, the legislature shall have the power to reserve marriage to opposite-sex couples. Um, and you see Section 23 was put into the state constitution in 1998 after 69% of Hawaii voted in favor for it. And it was really viewed as a backlash from the legislature and the public after the Hawaii Supreme Court was the first in the world to rule in favor of same-sex marriage in a Bear v. Lewin case in 1993. Um, retired Judge Dan Foley argued the historic case on behalf of the same-sex couples. The 
adoption of Section 23, Article 1 of our Constitution is a, is a sorry point in our history. It was the only time Hawaii has ever adopted a constitutional provision to take away rights from a minority. It's the only time the designated a minority in the Bill of Rights for discrimination, and it's still there. And he said activist groups um, were pushing the legislature in 1994, 1995, 1996 to put a clause in the Constitution to ban same-sex marriage. Um, And they even targeted lawmakers who were resistant to it until the message was sent. And in 1997, the legislature decided to put the constitutional amendment to voters. Um, They actually at the same time kind of passed a companion bill that would allow for um, people some rights of marriage like health insurance sharing um, could be given to those who did not have the right to marry at the time. Um, You know, Dan Foley said that the pressure to pass on the companion bill came from the Senate because legislatures felt kind of guilty about passing that constitutional amendment. Um, And he recalled back in 1998, watching the voting results come in with the LGBTQ community in the ballroom in the Ilikai Hotel. I remember I had a couple of hundred people in front of me, same-sex couples who were crying who had just been rejected by their community, who were just denied equal protection of the law, who were just stripped of the victories that they achieved in court. And that was a very painful moment. So this constitutional amendment then, uh, what would it do exactly? Yeah, so Speaker Scott Psyche introduced the measure and it would put If it it is approved by the legislature, it would put it to voters to amend the Constitution and remove Section 23 um, from the Constitution. Um, The Change 23 Coalition has been fighting to amend the Constitution and get rid of Section 23. Um, Its chair, Jeff Hong, said that it's becoming more important to solidify protections for same-sex couples as LGBTQ rights have become increasingly threatened at a federal level. People don't realize that you leave these mistakes in your constitution and there's similar things happening with abortion rights in many jurisdictions they're like oh well you know this is a done deal and then pow right after the dobbs decision abortion is illegal in their jurisdictions right and so you don't want to leave it in there so they see that as a loophole. Right, yeah. And, you know, Hong referred to U.S. Supreme Court Clarence, um, Justice Clarence Thomas's concurring opinion in the Dobbs decision that you mentioned at the top of the show, um, you know, talking about the this is a case that overturned the right to abortion access in 2022. And Thomas wrote that the court should also reconsider its ruling that codified the same-sex marriage federally. Um It's really about having assurances for the LGBTQ people that same-sex marriage in the state is protected. Um, Haoheo Zablan is the board chair of the LGBTQ Legacy Foundation, and he said, although this current legislature isn't introducing any bills that would limit same-sex marriage, um, it doesn't mean that future ones won't. However, we we don't know that for sure the next five to 10 years. And so, you know, for us, it would be huge to to know that there is zero discriminatory language in the state constitution, full stop. So where are we at? What's the status of this bill? Yeah, so um, the bill is going to be heard on Wednesday, um, so tomorrow, in Representative David Tarnas's Judiciary and Hawaiian Affairs Committee. Um, and it's particularly significant for Representative Tarnas because he and Psyche were just um, two of six legislature, le- legislators in 1997 who voted against Section 23 three of the, the constitutional amendment back in 1997. Um, Congressman Ed Case was also one of the very few that voted against this constitutional amendment in 1997. Um, 
Representative Tarnas said that, you know, after he cast his no vote for Section 23, um, he received death threats and he really credits this no vote to cost him his seat in that election. And he said that his opponent in 1998 really fully weaponized his vote and um, he lost just by 82 votes during that time. But because he had young children and he and his wife decided he shouldn't run again, so he didn't for almost 20 years until 2016 after he his kids grew up. I always talked about wanting to come back. And so when the time came, they said, go for it, Dad. You know, you took the time off for us. Now you can go back and do what you really want to do. And so it is. I, you know, I get all teary when I think about it because here I am 30 years later, and I can actually take a, an important role as chair of the Judiciary and Hawaiian Affairs Committee to move forward a bill to correct the mistake that the uh, legislature did 30 years ago. Yeah, you can hear the emotion in his voice there. Yeah, he was getting a little emotional, of course, um, because it means so much to him. And, you know, he wasn't reelected into the House until 2018, but he stands by his no vote to Section 23, and he said he had to do what was right and protect people's rights during that time. Um, wanted to note that constitutional amendments are different than regular bills. Um, there needs to be a two-thirds majority vote in both the House and the Senate to put the question to voters. Um, and then there's a simple majority that's needed by the public, which if this got on the ballot, the 2024 ballot, um, to actually amend the Constitution and get rid of that Section 2020, that Section 23. Um, the last time the state amended the Constitution was in 2016, um, when Hawaii voted in favor of using excess general funds to prepay general obligation bonds. Without that amendment in 2016, general funds could only be used to provide tax refunds or supplement other funds in place for emergencies. So it's not very common to have these constitutional amendments. Yeah, so it's uh, it's uphill uphill battle. Right, yeah. I mean, it'll have to get the two-thirds in, in both chambers, and so um, and it's on its first um, committee hearing, so there's, there's still a bit of ways to go, but it All seems right. momentum's there. Okay, well, thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate it. That was HBR's Ashley Mizuo talking to us about a proposed constitutional amendment to strengthen marriage equality laws in Hawaii. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your Backyard Quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omoloka'i, olana'i, omau, okaholabe, ohava'i. Today we have a sweet memory that is Hawaiian in name only. Our story takes place in our retrofitted garage back in 1934. It was there that food scientists A.W. Leo, Tom Yates, and Ralph Harris perfected an ice cream syrup topping that became the first official recipe for the soft drink brand Hawaiian Punch. They were sold under the brand name Pacific Citrus Products Company and marketed as Leo's Hawaiian Punch. The popularity of the new product took off as it was sold to restaurants, ice cream manufacturers, and other establishments. After a few years, the Leo was dropped from the name and the brand was bought and sold many times before ending up with its current owner, Keurig Dr. Pepper, Inc., 
Although the brand still carries the name Hawaiian, it didn't originate here in the islands. The name actually comes from the fact that all of the ingredients for the original recipe concocted by the creators were shipped from Hawaii. And that's uh, today's Backyard Quiz. Uh, We wanted to know where the fruity Hawaiian punch drink was invented. So where was it invented? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right wins a reusable HPR tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing parents and children experiencing homelessness with opportunities to secure housing, including Family Promise of Hawaii. NareetHawaii.com. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky today expressed his frustration with the delays impacting the aid promised to his country by Western allies. He said the delays make the fight against Russia very difficult. This week marks the two-year anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. The local group Hawaii Stands with Ukraine is organizing a rally at the state capitol tomorrow to remind the public of the ongoing conflict. Laura Palafox is their spokesperson. Palafox is a humanitarian. She moved to Oahu over 15 years ago after growing up in Australia and living in various countries around the world. Her father is Ukrainian, and she's in contact with several families and businesses in the country. The Conversations Russell Subiano sat down with Palafox in our studio this morning. A lot of people don't realize how many Ukrainians are actually here. And in fact, Ukrainians were working sugar plantations in Hawaii. Wow. Yeah. So although I'm, I'm not a descendant of those, I've been here for 15 years, mm-hmm. married a local guy, you know, so I'm half Ukrainian and half English. And I knew a lot of the history of Ukraine from my father. Mm -hmm. And um, it really deeply, deeply saddened me. And he had a lot of pain in his heart from what had been done to Ukraine. It's been hard for Ukrainians to to oust them, to, you know, reclaim Ukraine. And for those people that don't know, Ukraine existed, like existed a long, long time ago before there was any thought of Russia. Ukraine was there with the Silk Route passing through it. It was a thriving, prosperous society, an incredible, rich culture of just music and art. And, and you know, it, it's amazing. But, you know, Ukraine has had this history. You know, Russia's been trying to cover up and rewrite. And, and my father, you know, saw them burning down libraries and and schools and books and and just to to erase the Ukrainian culture. It was a genocide then and it's a genocide now. I know that you are in contact with organizations and people in Ukraine. What have you heard about how the war has impacted them? Well, honestly, it's a nightmare. Mm. I, I don't know how else to explain it. And I know people become numb to things that they see on TV. 
because it feels so far away, you feel removed, almost surreal. But, you know, I've, I've, I've been on calls to friends and to family in Ukraine when bombs are raining down and they're, you know, in fear and crying. And then it feels real. It's not far away. You hear their voice. It, the voice is with you right now in this moment, in this present moment. And it's very affecting. But I, I, I can't imagine, you know, the stress because this is daily stress, you know. And, and Hawaii remembers when we had that nuclear alert, right, from right. North Korea. Right. And, and people, freak, can you imagine that's happening daily? You know, one family in, in Kharkiv that I helped because, you know, the father's factory where he worked was bombed. He lost his job. He had seven kids to take care of. He had no wife. He had an elderly uh, mother. Um, the kid's school was bombed. They couldn't go to school. So there he was at home trying to take care of his kids and there, he couldn't buy food and anything like that. So I've been helping him, um, his family. And I hear, you know, from him, he goes, oh, Lara, sorry, I can't talk right now. Um, we're huddled in the hallway with my children because bombs are dropping and they drop constantly, you know, and this will be like the middle of the night, any time of the day or night. And my brother was there just recently as well in Kharkiv. And yeah, he he sent me a recording. He just you know, one of those S-300 bombs had just dropped wow. nearby and he'd been running for cover. And how do people feel? I mean, honestly, they're clinging to hope from the outside world. And I get messages like that. I People say to me, you know, when, when I speak to them, thank God somebody cares. You know, thank God. And I, and I just say, look, hang on, hang on. You know, the world does care. We, we do want to help. Yeah, we're outside in our, you know, comfortable homes. And, but that's, that's how you guys should be, you know. And I'm so sorry that, that you know, they're going through this. It's, it, it's just absolutely horrendous. I mean, people's lives are completely devastated. Yeah. I mean... They, they watch friends or family get killed, you know, and, and it can just happen moment to moment and you, you just never know. And it, it is a terror. It is terrorism. You know, these Russian bombs are, are hitting indiscriminately and it's been going on. It, it's coming up to two years now and it's, it's absolutely horrendous. And I, my cousin said to me, Lara, you know, I watched the news. She said the news doesn't show half of it. You mentioned that the Russian invasion is coming up on the second anniversary this week. The full-scale yeah. invasion is February 24. Even though it marks the two-year anniversary this week, mm. the war with the Russians has actually been going on for 10 years, yes. right? 10 years yes. this month. Can you share a little bit about that history to give our listeners some context as to how long the struggle has been going on with Russia? Well, as soon as... The Ukrainian government backed out of that free trade agreement, mm -hmm. but that was back in 2014. Russia immediately moved in on Ukraine, and it went into the eastern part of Ukraine, known as the Donbass. And I know this because my brother was there. He was there in Maidan Square, 
He was then he went over to the Donbass as well. He was reporting back about what was happening. And I saw images of these Russian tanks that had just moved over the border. What people don't realize is that has been going on and on and on for 10 years. You know, throughout the Obama administration, the Trump administration, you know, sure, they gave a little aid to Ukraine, but it's like drip feeding, you know? That's not enough to end the war. Mm -hmm. And you would think, particularly with that Budapest memorandum, which was signed by America and England and Russia, back in 1994, and they had to give up, you know, Ukraine agreed to give up all their long-range weapons and their nuclear weapons under the proviso that nobody would invade them or in the event of an invasion, they would be protected. Now, the irony is those weapons, by all, all agreement, were given to Russia. And then Ukraine has no deterrent. And so the very person, well, the very state that is is signing it saying, oh, yes, we'll protect you in the event of an invasion, then invades. It's just ridiculous and unbelievable that this should be allowed to happen. And not only that, following the invasion, was the invasion stopped as it was supposed to be, as it should have been? No, there was some aid trickling in, but that's enough, what, just to keep a war going. It's not enough to stop a war. And and that's the big thing here. You know, that's why a lot of Ukrainians are, are, are confused and and just can't understand what's going on because, you know, if you truly want to end a war, if you truly want Ukraine to win, you make a decision to do so. And by all rights, all all moral, political, economic reasons for the US, that is what we should be doing, then do it. Hawaii is over 7,500 miles away from the Ukraine. And to kind of put that into context, if you go the other way, Hawaii is about 7,500 miles away from Paris. And so it's far away, but it's not really that far away. What would you say to someone who wants to understand why people in Hawaii should care about a war that is so far away? Oh, I have a long list. Okay. um, First of all, the Budapest Memorandum, which was the document that you know, Ukraine was to give up all of its nuclear weapons, which it did, and it was signed by, you know, the the UK, US, and Russia. So there's a responsibility there for the US to protect Ukraine in the event of an invasion, because they no longer have that deterrent that that nuclear weapons offer. Unfortunately, that's that's the way it is. And, And as we have seen what happened, Ukraine was invaded by Russia, and they were one of the very you know, signers of this document. Second of all, Ukraine has been very supportive of other countries. People don't realize this either, that you know, Ukraine has supported the US when US has needed, for example, gone and, and helped with US NATO troops when they've needed it. You know. Ukraine has, has been helpful to other countries, but it has never invaded another country. You know, and, and I would think we would join forces with countries like that because they have this desire to live in peace, this desire for democracy. They're not a country like Russia who wants to go and invade. You know, they, they like the mentality there is is like a century ago, you know, of imperialism and, and that sort of thing. Whereas the world is, I I thought had come out of that that sort of mentality or at least, you know, 
developed enough that that wouldn't be happening. So, you know, supporting a country like Ukraine is is beneficial to world democracy, to peace. Ukraine has a lot of roots here, a lot of ties here. You'd be surprised. I'm discovering more and more people who actually have grandparents or great-grandparents who were from Ukraine wow. here. Not only that, for humanitarian reasons as well. You know, I mean, the horrific things that have been, it's medieval. You know, I had one woman from Ukraine who'd just come out, a psychologist, she she had been discussing things with her, her, her friend, her psychologist friend there, that what these Russian troops had been doing to children, literally torturing parents, non-combatants, torturing parents in front of their children, torturing children in front of their parents, raping children for days, pulling out their teeth so that they would remember and be obedient to Russians. I mean, it's medieval stuff that they're doing. It's horrendous. You know, almost 20,000 children have been stolen by Russia and moved across the border to re-education camps to teach them to hate Ukraine. This is this is all part of genocide, you know, trying to wipe out a culture, take their youth, take the children away from parents. Could you imagine? So from a humanitarian standpoint, it's horrific. Do you want a world like this? Do you, do you want these kinds of people to come to power? And people don't realize we are really, really connected politically, economically with, with the world. So what happens in one part of the world comes back to affect us. Believe it. You know, the average person might not see it, but it is real. It is happening. And I, you know, I come from a place of goodwill to the human beings. You know, I really would love to see this world at peace. I care deeply for human beings. It's horrific what is happening. And I know that, you know, people will say, oh, but there are a lot of things happening around the world that are horrific. Yes, there are. And it all horrifies me. But right now, this is more important and can have political and economic ramifications that people really need to understand. It is immediate. It is now. It needs to be stopped now. Laura Palafox, thanks so much for your time this morning. Thank you. Aloha. That was Hawaii Stands with Ukraine spokesperson Laura Palafox talking with HPR's Russell Subiano. Palafox's group is organizing a rally in support of Ukraine tomorrow, Wednesday, February 21st, from 4.30 p.m. to 6 at the state capitol. We'll have a link on the conversation page of our website after the show. Support for HPR comes from Chamber Music Hawaii. The Honolulu Brass Quintet performs From Box to Pop, Brass Quintet Through the Ages, February 26th at St. John Lutheran Church in Kailua. Tickets at chambermusichawaii.org. HPR is hiring for a full-time membership manager. Are you experienced in nonprofit fundraising? A public radio superfan? This is the job opportunity for you. Join HBR's growing and passionate team. Apply by March 31st. 
Learn more at hawaiipublicradio.org slash jobs. And now it's time to pour out the answer to our backyard quiz. Earlier, we shared the origin story of Hawaiian Punch, the beverage with the bright blue label located in the soft drink aisle. But back in 1934, creators A.W. Leo, Tom Yates, and Ralph Harris perfected the recipe as a tropical-tasting syrup for ice cream. Originally sold as Leo's Hawaiian Punch, Leo was later dropped, and Hawaiian Punch's popularity spread. At first, it was only available wholesale in gallon glass jugs to ice cream parlors and soda fountains. Over time, not only did the name evolve, but so did the product. Some soon realized that the syrup mixed with water also made for a tasty beverage. By the 1940s, the company set about making a drink base available to consumers. Although the product wasn't invented here, the fruits in the original recipe, which included pineapple, orange, guava, passion fruit, and papaya, were all imported from Hawaii. Today we asked where Hawaiian punch was created, where was it invented, and Fullerton, California would be the answer. Our winner today, Raul from Pupukea, he says he grew up in Fullerton, so he heard those stories. So it's appropriate that you won today, Raul. And thank you to Casey Harlow for the idea for today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to TalkBack at hawaiipublicradio.org. Remember the lullabies your mother used to sing you? Well, our next guest uses that strong connection of a Filipino lullaby in her newest novel. The book is called La Tercera. Author Gina Apostle has penned a number of books, one of which made it onto the Publishers Weekly 2018 list of best books to read. Two others also won the Philippines National Book Award. Here's a YouTube clip of Apostle talking about her new novel and a song, which was a painful memory of bloody battles between the U.S. and the Philippines. Those battles killed tens of thousands of Filipinos in towns across the island of Samar in their fight for independence. Inday means child, girl child. Where were you when the doll burned, flaming for seven years? No one saw the smoke. And that poem, that song has been, I, I find it very moving to read that song because I, read, I heard that song for quite some time as a child and I did not understand what it was about. And apparently that, that song is a song, you know, sung um, as a lullaby, but it is about smoke, it's about fire, and it's about a doll burning. Now, Apostle is this year's chair of the University of Hawaii's Dan Inouye Democratic Ideals Program. She used to give a talk on the 22nd, Thursday evening, as part of the Better Tomorrow series at the Art Auditorium. She talked to us about her new book that weaves in her mother's story. Well, I was actually doing research on the Philippine-American War. And what I tried to do with that, because as a novelist, I need to get close 
to some protagonists, and the Filipino-American were so distant. So I thought about my mom's favorite relative, her great-uncle, Francisco Delgado, and did research on him because I thought he lived during the time, he was around probably 14 or 15, when the war happened, maybe 13, but very young, Filipino-American. So he, he lived during the time of that change from the Spanish to the American. So I thought it might be a way to get into the war through him. So I was going to do two brothers, one one's revolutionary, one's collaborator, and someone has to kill someone. But for whatever reason, I ended up including my mother, who loved this guy, in the story. And once I started including my mother, I really got into my novel. My novel, I felt, took this kind of speed, and I felt this attachment that I didn't have. And so I connected contemporary politics with the Philippine-American War through my mom. And if I recall right, in the clip that I just saw, there was a lullaby yeah. about a doll. Yeah. Share with our listeners about that story. Yes, that is Inday Inday Nakainka Han Kasunog Han Munika. It is a waray lullaby. So I'm waray. I grew up in Leyte. And it's a song. It's a beautiful song about a doll who burns in a fire for seven years. And I've been told that that is actually a song that memorializes the burning of Samar in 1901 by the U.S. forces in a genocidal move when Filipino revolutionaries raided Balangiga in Samar And in retaliation, Americans killed tens of thousands of Filipinos. Filipinos killed 48 Americans. Americans killed tens of thousands of Filipinos in Samar. You know, in that story, that independent story, I mean, I just uh, recently saw uh, an exhibit in in D.C. about the Spanish-American War. And that was my takeaway, was when you connect all the dots together, you can really appreciate what these Native peoples went through. And, you know, here in Hawaii, we have so many Filipinos who don't know the history. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just, you know, any way that you can share that right. story right. Um, is important. Well, it's the same era as the annexation of Hawaii. It's the same era as the uh, machinations of the U.S. government to take Hawaii. Because what that was, was this huge desire, especially of someone like Theodore Roosevelt, who believed in creating this great navy to make America this expansionist country. So the annexation of Hawaii, the taking of the Philippines, the taking of Puerto Rico, the Spanish-American War, uh, were all in of the same motive and aim of expansionist America. So they are very connected. So even the fact that Filipinos are here in Hawaii has to do with that moment in time. Yeah, I mean, it connects us all. Yes. You know, that thinking at that time, you know, it's Visions and Revisions Mm -hmm. was the name of the exhibit. Uh, And I just found it 
so fascinating because you saw its dominance as right. a naval power and right. what was happening to these yeah. various islands across right. the Pacific. And, you know, Guam has its story and mm-hmm. Philippines has its mm-hmm. story. And I think to have that mm-hmm. shared mm-hmm. experience is right. really mm-hmm. powerful because it does right. connect us. But I will say that, okay, it's a shared experience structurally because of that imperialist expansion. But I will kind of emphasize our shared experience should also be decolonization, that we, our our work is a shared decolonization, that we share it, um, a way to... Um, memorialize and remember that we came to be through this imperialist violence and recognize ways in which we must address and even in our current consciousness not condone it to resist even now the ways in which we are still taken by those forces you know our uh, the uh, the united states is trying to create military bases again in the philippines that's a horror um those kinds of things so we need to keep resisting in my view keep decolonizing and so your books this theme of trying to bring about some social change mm-hmm. or, or I, I don't know exactly what a book would do, but definitely to bring about a consciousness that here's history, what do we do with it? History is, we can't deal with history in a passive way because history actually acts upon us. It's still acting upon us. That imperialist moment is still acting upon us, especially with militarism, especially with climate change, you know. Um, so... My novels are about bringing back memory, but in an in my view, because readership is active, it's an it's a constantly replenishable thing. Reading is is a replenishing of consciousness. I think that's where I am with why I keep working through history in my novels. And do you remember when you thought, gee? I think I'm going to be a writer. I mean, I don't know. Did your mother have any uh, influence of that growing up? Um, my mother's influence really is, um, and this is what I I kept thinking about through my novel La Tercera, that my mom, who absolutely loved Imelda Marcos, I have to say, it's a t- terrible thing, um, but she was such, she believed in me just being who I am. She believed in my desire. She believed in the completion, the work for a dream, because she was also an artist, and that's. Um, but not she was not a visible artist, um, in the sense that you know people didn't see her as an artist. But she believed in my dreams, and that's where, if I wanted whatever I wanted to do, I knew my mother, given all of the complications, simply loved me. And then I don't know if your mother is still around. No, I would not have been able to write the novel if she were alive. <laughs> okay, gotcha. Because <laughs> it's about her great uncle, you know, and she loved him. And I have, you know, there is a complicated story with her great uncle because he was an American bureaucrat. And so did you have to say, okay, mom? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I me, did. But constantly. I'm gonna, yeah. yeah. I mean, the thing about novel writing is that I think that's actually why I, another reason why I write is the difficulty of regarding um, um, contradicting um, 
truths and beliefs, you know, the difficulty in articulating contradiction, which really is the heart, I think, of Filipino reality, contradiction, simultaneity, simultaneous opposing things. Filipinos tend to have that capacity to be simultaneous in their beliefs. So I think that truth-telling that is part of novel-making, the truth-telling that recognizes multiplicity and contradiction um, is one of the reasons I keep writing. Yeah. But I love that you have a sense of humor. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You know, yes. when you talk about, yes. oh, I know how my books are going to end. Yeah. You know, I don't know how I'm going to get there. Yeah, yeah. But it, it just evolves. Yeah, right. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, I do think that it comes, I, I, I will push this again, you know, humor um, in the context of colonization is necessary, because how else do you survive? You know, you have humor is about seeing things from another, another in another way. It's always about an alternate way of viewing. It's not right. You make a joke because someone has a belief in this other thing. And that and that joke kind of responds to a hegemonic thing. And so I do think that humor is also a form of survival for the colonized. And so, gosh, is there anything that you would like to say to budding authors out there, writers, young writers, Filipino writers, who may not know quite how the dress fits, oh, yeah, but right, you know yeah. they're, they're, they they want to. They have a story to tell, mm. something to say. I would say honor your voice, honor even your not knowing what you don't know. Go forth and and try to know, but don't feel that there's something lacking in you because you don't know. Because the fact is, there's a whole structure out there that has, has kind of constructed your not knowing. There's a structure of imperialism, colonization, capitalism that prefers you not to know the fullness of history. So don't take it on yourself as, yourself as the problem. Think about the larger world around you, what has made you, and then move into the spaces of more profound truth-telling. Okay, and then if it means honoring your mother. Honor and, your mother yes. and the complications <laughs> of your mother. You know, honor your travel, honor your migration story. Honor all of those things. And for one thing, the Filipino story of survival is a hugely beautiful story. We survived wars. We survived genocide. We survived fascism. We're still under a kind of fascism, but we're, we're still living through it. And I think surviving with humor. <laughs> well, thank you so much. This has been a delight to speak with yeah. you. And thank you so much for carving time out for oh, us. Oh, thank you so much, Catherine. I really appreciate it. That was Gina Apostol. Look for links about her talk on the uh, UH Better Speaker Series on the conversation page of our website later today. And that wraps it up for us today. Tomorrow we celebrate our whales with a conversation around these magnificent creatures and the threats from boat strikes and entanglement with marine debris. Got a whale memory to share? Call our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation. <laughs>